Hi, I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, and this is your Ontario Animal Health Network podcast. Quick and handy tips for veterinarians on the go. Today, we're joined as part of our uh, as part of our bovine respiratory disease uh, podcast series by Dr. Ken Bateman, Professor Emeritus from the Department of Population Medicine at the Ontario Veterinary College. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, Melanie. Okay, so we're going to be talking about um, some of the more clinical and um, and treatment parts of um, bovine respiratory disease, and then uh, Dr. Joanne Hewson and Dr. Jeff Caswell will cover some of the pathology and the uh, and the diagnosis issues. So, Ken, why don't you start us off with a little overview of the beef industry in uh, Ontario? Okay, I think uh, one of the things that we have to realize about the beef industry is the segmentation that occurs in it compared to say a the dairy industry where a calf is quite often born, raised, lactates, and is culled from the same farm. We have the segmentation that most calves are going to, uh, before they go to harvest, they will have been on at least two operations, the cow-calf operation and the feedlot, and some will even be on three where there's a a backgrounding or a growing phase after the cow-calf operation. And the other thing that is a a particular uh, impediment to some of the health uh, prevention procedures that we would like is that the cow-calf operation is quite often relatively small. In Canada, the latest information we have probably from 2006 census would say there's over 80,000 farms with beef cows. And most of those are relatively small. 97% of those farms have less than 300 females, uh, which would probably be considered sort of a, a, a substantial, adequate-sized operation to make a full-time living. So, you know, only 3%, let's say, of the farms, cow-calf operations, are likely to be full-time operations. But those small farms actually contain about 80% of the cows. On the other hand, when you look at it, feedlots, there's... Uh, about 170 feedlots that have over a thousand head and 43 feedlots have greater than 10,000 head and those 43 feedlots actually supply about 65 percent of cattle for harvest so we've got large feedlots and relatively small cow-calf operations. And that's in Ontario or in Canada? No that would be across Canada. Canada. Um, There wouldn't be large feedlots in Ontario greater than 10,000 head, but there would be a a handful that are greater than 1,000 head. So, you know, what we have is a lot of mixing when the animals get to to the feedlot. Large feedlots in Western Canada would feed in pens of 250 to 300 head, and even in Ontario, we're likely to have uh, feedlot pens that are 75 head or greater. So there's a fair bit of mixing when the calves get to the feedlot. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about weaning um, with cow-calf operations, and um, and just tell us a little bit about what you know, what the methods and what you would recommend, and that kind of thing. Sure. Well, I think uh, what we've got to keep in mind is that uh, beef calves can be weaned successfully any time after about four months of age, but commonly they're going to be six to eight months of age, and in some cases even up to perhaps eleven months of age. Uh, so, so there's a, a wide range of ages and therefore sizes. Um, there's three real common methods of weaning. One, I guess I call cold turkey, where they're probably weaned onto the truck and go to sale, or they could be weaned in that method and, and kept on the home operation, uh, but without a whole lot of, of other preparation. Second method that became popular several years ago is uh, fence line weaning, and more commonly, uh, 
sort of more recently, uh, we've got something called two-stage weaning with uh, quiet wean flaps that are placed in the, in the calf's nose, and those were popularized by Joe Stuckey and Derek Haley. The uh, last two, fence line and two-stage, will certainly reduce the amount of pacing and balling that occurs uh, after weaning. And uh, we have to remember that when these calves are uh, weaned cold turkey, they're going to do a lot of pacing and bawling, and, and they're really not eating or drinking when they're doing that. So they're in a very severe negative energy balance if they're weaned without any uh, preparation. Uh, I guess to expand on those a little bit, fence line weaning is where you uh, uh, do just that. You put the cows on one side of a substantial fence and calves on the other, and they tend to sort of lie down opposite each other and uh, not do significant amount of, of pacing and bawling and uh, gradually they'll they'll take to the feed and water. The two-stage weaning is a little more labor-intensive but what happens there is you put a, a plastic flap in the nose of the calf. Uh, Stuckey and Haley recommend that that be done about four days before you're going to separate them. First the calf gets used to not having milk as a, as a uh, nutritional source and then in the second stage of weaning, they're separated from the cow, and they can show uh, quite dramatic reduction in bawling and pacing that occurs with that method. But the calf would have to be handled once before weaning and then at weaning to remove that flap. So either fence line or two-stage would reduce the stress on the calf uh, quite substantially. One of the things that... Uh, you know, it might be an impediment to using the two-stage weaning is the, uh, the time and effort that's required in, in sorting the calves off from the sure. cows. And uh, one of the ways, uh, one, people should be aware that there's a very good YouTube video that you can access if you just search by, say, Stuckey and sorting cow-calf pairs that shows a very, very easy method of separating those. So reduces the labor substantially. To, uh, to handle those calves for placement and removal of those flops. Okay, and we'll put that link on our, uh, on our uh, website and on our uh, podcast site too, so then people can just click on it if they want to look at it. Um, so what about preparing calves for weaning and sale? What, what, um, what are the newest, latest, greatest things to know about that? Well, yeah, I guess uh, one of the things to, to keep in mind is that it's challenging because uh, the goals of the cow-calf producer may be somewhat different than the feedlot. The feedlot, obviously... Um, wants to buy the calf as inexpensively as possible, the cow-calf producer would like to maximize the return. It's <laughs> like any buy and sell Exactly. Situation. So that, that creates uh, some, some uh, antagonism, if you will, at that sure, point. Sure. So, uh, but basically, uh, creep feeding is a good way to get calves used to the feed that they're going to uh, get used to dry feed, get used to something other than milk and grass. And it's a good way to keep calves gaining in the fall of the year as the, as the uh, milk production and pasture quality declines. But one has to keep in mind that creep feeding, uh, first of all, you need to consider what you're doing. Uh, you'd use a higher protein creep feed if there was pasture there but it was of low quality. And if there's basically less pasture, then you're going to have to provide both energy and sure. protein in that creep feed. So you need to pay attention to the, the type of creep feeding used. But you do need to realize that creep feeding will not spare the cow's body condition. So if we have a lack of pasture, 
uh, creep feeding will definitely keep the calves gaining, but they're still going to draw the cow's body condition down because she's still going to lactate, and that's still going to be their primary uh, first choice in, in terms of nutrition. The other thing to realize is that you can't uh, push these calves too hard and have high rates of gain or the they get what we call a greasy and very a slick kind of calf that's got an extra extra body condition, and the, the buyers will discount those when it comes to sale time. Okay. okay. As far as pre-vaccination is concerned, uh, uh, we had a, a, a master's student back around uh, the year 2000 that did some work on special sales, and we found that if we could get these calves pre-vaccinated in combination with prior castration and dehorning before sale, that it would reduce treatment rates in the feedlot by about 30%. Uh, but it's important to note that we had some data available about the addition of pre-weaning to those other procedures, and that was the most significant. It reduced treatment rates by about 85%. So there's no doubt which of the procedures is most important in preparing these calves to go to a feedlot. Okay. Um, when it comes to the premium that, that's going to be paid, um, we found that uh, the cents per pound was p higher, the lighter the calf, but uh, more or less you were looking at about a $40 per head premium that buyers were willing to pay for those types of calves. I think it's really important that, that uh, people realize that some of the people promoting pre-weaning or pre-vaccination special sales, etc., it, uh, maybe don't make the best comparison. So it's really important that you're comparing apples to apples, if we, as we say. So you must look at calves that are sold in the same auction barn over the same period uh, because markets will fluctuate week to week, can be skewed by outliers, and, and shrink differences uh, will be different from market to market. Some more recent data from superior auctions in the States which sells truckload uh, lots of calves which show that calves that are pre-weaned with at least one round of vaccination received about five cents a pound more than those with vaccination but not weaned. So clearly those buyers are rewarding the pre-weaning aspect right. more so than just vaccination. So it's, it's important to keep in mind that uh, which procedure is most important in reducing treatment rates when they get to the feedlot. Um, the other caution that I would, would uh, put in is that we've got to remember that pre-weaning on the farm of origin, while it sounds good and it, it certainly does reduce the treatment rates when they get to the feedlot, that we are transferring some of the risk for disease and for mortality to the cow-calf producer. And it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee that there's not going to be disease there on the cow-calf operation. should be less, but there can be substantial wrecks, as we say, uh, if the person is either too busy with an off-farm job or doesn't yeah. have the skill to deal with those kinds of problems. To properly separate them and make sure that things are done correctly. That's right. So one of the things to keep in mind is that we may have difficulty ever getting huge numbers of calves that are weaned on the cow-calf operation and going to the feedlot with a, a weaning period of 45 days or more because perhaps those with the facilities and skill to wean and feed them after weaning on the farm of origin may already be doing so and a lot of others may not have the skill or the facilities available to do that. 
The other thing that I'm always telling cow-calf producers is that if they have the facilities and skill to uh, feed for 45 to 60 days to produce pre-weaned calves, why not feed them for a longer period of time, uh, i.e. background those calves and grow them out before sending them to the, the feedlot, so maybe 120 days or 150 days even. There's definitely no doubt economically that gains of around two pounds or slightly higher per day for for 45 to 60 days post weaning are profitable most of the time, not just at today's high prices and high calf prices and relatively low feed prices. But people have to keep in mind that the premium they're going to get for that extra weight when they sell them is is for the weight, the extra pounds they put on. They're not likely to see an increase in price per pound. So sometimes that's a message you have to get out to cow-calf producers okay. that somebody's not going to pay you more per pound. In fact, you're probably going to get less per pound because they are heavier. Right. Oh, okay. But they are going to get the extra dollars per pound. Oh, yeah. You just have to realize that your your financial gain is in the in the weight gain they've put on, not in the price per pound. Okay, great. So, tell me about some of the vaccines and what people are using these days. Um, yeah, I think most of the uh, special sales where we have cow-calf clubs or auctions putting on vaccinated sales, they'll generally require that the calves have had two rounds, usually one, uh, you know, we'll say at uh, two months of age or, or before they go to grass generally. Uh, and those vaccines would be a five-way modified live viral with IBR, PI3, BRSV, and type 1 and type 2 BVD. They would want you to include Menheimi hemolytica and Histophilus somni, as well as a probably seven or eight-way clostridial vaccine as well. So, as I said, two rounds of those with the first one given perhaps around two months of age, and the second two to four weeks before weaning. So they really want want a comprehensive vaccination program. Okay. Um, and, and I guess it's it's also important to, uh, to realize that uh, probably when you look at what happens when they get to the feedlot and the causes of disease, probably the most important parts of those would be the uh, BVD vaccine and the Menheim hemolytica. Those are the, probably the two most important, although the others are uh, come in the same package as well. All right, and um, so, so the calves are prepared and they get sold, and then what happens when they do get to the feedlot, and what do, what do we do when they do get to the feedlot? Most of the time when they get to the feedlot, they're going to be revaccinated uh, because they may not have been able to buy uh, a whole pen of calves that had the same vaccination program or whatever. So generally they're going to get a, the same five-way modified live viral when they get to the feedlot. Probably in Ontario, they're less likely to get Manheimia and Histophilus uh, vaccination. Uh, probably going to get the, the modified live virals as well as clostridials. Uh, when they do get to the feedlot, I think we got a Remember that uh, there's definitely some cautions to be aware of. Home-raised calves are less predictable in when or if they will break with respiratory disease um, versus mixed auction mark calves. Auction mark calves, generally, it's going to be the first week or two, uh, and, and we probably know how to manage those uh, best. But we can see home-raised calves 
break with respiratory disease even as late as a month or more after arrival. So hmm. it's almost like you have to be more vigilant in watching those calves. You expect less disease, but it's definitely uh, unpredictable when it's so going to happen. Because they've had, just because of their mixed immunity or because of... Yeah, I think we, we don't know that they've had the same rounds of vaccines or especially the exposure. Okay. Certainly pre-mixing uh, calves, uh, having calves mixed from, from various sources is probably the greatest likelihood of causing disease. And those home-raised calves haven't had that other exposure to, to other strains of, of bacteria and viruses that, that the auction mark calves will have uh, had naturally. One of the, the, the only th uh, thing probably from a viral standpoint to worry about with those home-raised calves is you will occasionally see bovine respiratory syncytial virus outbreaks in those calves, which you are less likely to see if they're well-mixed auction mark calves. Okay. Do we know why that happens or same reason? Uh, I think there are just some herds out there that are susceptible to BRSV or, or uh, don't have the immunity to it. Uh, it's not going to happen uh, in all home-raised calves, but when we see BRSV as an outbreak, it's usually in a single source group of animals. Okay. Um, the other thing to, to be cautious of when they get to the feedlot is that if you People are buying small groups of yearlings that have never been moved before. So cow-calf producer keeps them, backgrounds them, and sells yearlings that they will uh, behave like calves with respect to respiratory disease because they haven't had that mixing occur in the past. Oh, okay. Uh, so important to know as the vet on the feedlot what, uh, where they came from or what the source is. Oh, for sure. I think it, the more information that you can have as the uh, owner or the, the uh, vet dealing with the feedlot, the, the better you can tailor a program that's going to be appropriate for that type of animal. Um, the other thing to be aware of is that uh, as we get into these larger pens of calves, and multi-pen feedlots, even in Ontario now, that calves should be re cattle should be revaccinated with a modified live IBR booster, probably sometime between 30 and 70 days on feed. Uh, it's not going to happen all the time, but we have seen where people have not used the IBR vaccine in that situation that uh, we can get IBR outbreaks at that time. You're not likely to see very much IBR as a problem in the first month, but when you get into that uh, second, third, fourth month on feed is when we've had animals die of secondary pneumonia after, mm. after uh, uh, IBR outbreaks in pens. So especially important in multi-pen feedlots. Um, the other thing when they get to the feedlot, I think it's important to fill a pen as quickly as possible, preferably in seven days or less. And if you can, uh, the fewer animals in that pen, the better. So we say, you know, maybe less than 150 head makes it easier to find the sick cattle right. and easier to find them in a timely manner. From processing standpoint, uh, I think it's important that it be done before 48 hours or after four weeks. We believe that if you try to process animals uh, it, between those two times, you may be just unfortunately, unknowingly, getting them stressed at the same time that they're about to break with respiratory disease oh, okay. on their own. Yeah. So you can exacerbate the problem uh, by doing it at that time. And of course, I think everybody knows uh, from, from hard experience that we'd like to avoid dehorning and castrating at arrival. 
although sometimes that gets done even just because it's a matter of convenience. Sure. The least handling, the better. Yeah. Um, okay, now let's talk about metaphylaxis. I know this is a really it's a favorite word of yours. First, tell us what is metaphylaxis for those who don't know or need a refresher. Well, metaphylaxis is a term that's been coined in the feedlot business for administering uh, antibiotics by injection uh, when animals are about to break or at risk of respiratory disease. So they're on the edge of getting sick. That's so, right. Okay. And usually that's going to be soon after arrival with auction mark calves. So it's different than prophylaxis, which we would use for something like a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, so metaphylaxis uh, is, is the term for, for that injectable uh, antibiotic use, long-acting antibiotic. We, we've been using that probably in the feedlot industry since the early to mid-90s. And even with some of the older antibiotics like long-acting tetracycline, we saw very quickly that that had the capability to reduce treatment rates by about 50%. And when it's timed properly, even mortality by 50%. Wow. So it's, it's uh, very sparing on, on the uh, animal health staff in terms mm-hmm. of the number of animals they have to pull but it's also very positive from an animal welfare standpoint in that we don't have to use uh, our broader spectrum antibiotics to treat a a number of animals and if we can reduce the mortality by 50% that's pretty significant as well. Some of the newer long-acting antibiotics that have come along in the last few years uh, might even reduce that treatment rate by as much as 75%. So it spares labor as well as I think has a positive animal welfare aspect. Okay. When I was going through vet school, we were sort of warned against using long-acting antibiotics on a whole group, but I think we've come to realize that maybe it's one of the most significant things we can do in a feedlot okay. um, when we have higher risk animals. And I think how, does, it, how does that compare to feed antimicrobials? Yeah, feed antimicrobials uh, have been around for a long time and really haven't been shown to have the same positive effect that inject a well-timed metaphylactic injection has. The one exception where I think feed antimicrobials have been shown to be perhaps the, the best tool we have to combat this would be for Histophilus somni. So if we're having pleuritis mm-hmm. uh, and, and myocarditis problems, then sometimes people will so-called pulse feed antibiotics for a period of time, but it's really not as not something we use for controlling respiratory disease. Okay. okay. I think when we talk about metaphylaxis, it's important that we target the use of them appropriately. So there, there are high-risk and ultra-high-risk calves that definitely benefit from metaphylaxis. It's the best tool we have if we haven't been able to get these animals pre-weaned and pre-conditioned. But there are animals that are low risk, single source groups, animals that have been pre-conditioned, pre-weaned, where metaphylaxis would would really be a waste of money Mm -hmm. and and probably inappropriate antibiotic use. But your higher risk animals would be ones where we have several sources commingled, previous morbidity and mortality and that kind of animals these animals that are recently weaned, uh, especially in the fall of the year when we have uh, some fluctuating temperatures, uh, potential rain, snowfall, etc. Maybe they've had a long uh, trip where it's uh, uh, 
they've been a long time in transit or encountered fall weather on the trip down from Western Canada, etc. So those would be the types of animals that benefit most from, from the uh, metaphylaxis. Okay, um, so you talk about, uh, in your notes, you talked about uh, a REC index, so tell me about that. Yeah, well, uh, REC index is something that I would consider using on a low-risk group of animals where we didn't employ something like metaphylaxis, but unknownst to us, something triggered respiratory outbreak in those animals. So what we should be doing in those groups of animals is monitoring the cases of respiratory disease that we have to treat. And on a, on a rolling three-day average, if we treat 9 or 10% in the last three days, so it's not the total 9 or 10% treated, but if we've treated 9 or 10% in, in the last three days, then I think that's probably a significant trigger to go in and use individual injectable uh, antibiotics on the whole group at that point and that can sort of abort the outbreak or, or lessen the severity of it and find animals in a more timely manner. So but when you're choosing between the risk categories, um, would you change antibiotics or do you just do you generally use one antibiotic for the whole feedlot? No, I think that uh, if we if we decided a group was sort of at a medium risk, we you know not not high risk animals, but we felt that there was something about them that uh, maybe made them likely to be somewhere in between. We might use something, for example, like long acting tetracycline for uh, a medium risk group, whereas we might use some of the newer macrolide antibiotics for a high risk group, okay. and the the macrolides generally having a longer uh, period of action compared to say uh, long-acting tetracycline which would only be about three days. Okay all right so let's talk a little bit about uh, treating sick cattle at the feedlot level. Yeah I think I think you can never get around the fact that timely treatment is is the most important thing when it comes to treating sick animals. I've, I'm not that convinced that the antibiotic per se is going to make which one you choose is going to make a big difference compared to finding the animal and treating it in a timely manner. Our case definition for BRD in a feedlot is going to be fairly simple. It's an animal that's depressed, segregating itself from the group. When you look at it, it's, it's not going up to the feed bunk or uh, it, it's just empty. It's gaunt. It doesn't have the rumen fill and there's no other body system affected. As we say, it's, it's not showing neurologic, gastrointestinal, or, or uh, musculoskeletal signs. And when we get it to the, uh, to the treatment chute, we find that it's a febrile. Generally, that's going to be, uh, in most cases, febrile would be defined as about 40 degrees Celsius or 104 Fahrenheit or higher. I think we need clear, simple treatment protocols that, uh, that staff can follow, and I think that boils down to either two or a maximum of three antibiotics. We, uh, obviously not at the same time, but uh, <laughs> in, in our program. Um, I, I think we can get too fancy and, and really not have any evidence to support some, some fairly extravagant types of protocols. There's really no evidence for blanket use of ancillary drugs like steroids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories but they do have a place if, anim if a certain animal, 
the occasional animal happens to show severe dyspnea or hard breathing, then um, that would suggest we either have an animal that's got late treatment for fibrinous pneumonia or perhaps interstitial pneumonia and the, uh, the NSAIDs or steroids would be indicated in that particular case. But generally we need a single antibiotic at a time and not much else to tr successfully treat these animals. I think one of the things that's become a frustration for us in the feedlot when it comes to treating sick animals is mycoplasma bovis or mycoplasma pneumonia. It's a very characteristic chronic pneumonia. Uh, I should say characteristic uh, at post-mortem. The lesions are, are pretty obvious that it's mycoplasma. Uh, from a clinical standpoint in the live animal, I think we have to start suspecting mycoplasma when we have an animal that's been treated for the second or third time. Okay. When, we, when we see chronics, uh, we have to be, be very concerned that mycoplasma is involved. And uh, for that second and third treatment type animal, using an antibiotic that's effective against mycoplasma. And of course, that would negate the uh, penicillins or, or cephalosporins, which don't uh, act on mycoplasma because of its lack of cell wall. Um, and I think the interesting thing about mycoplasma pneumonia is it seems to have become a significant problem for us with our use of metaphylaxis and at the same time when we started using long-acting drugs for therapy. Because it alleviated, it eliminated everything else or? Yes, I think that we've had some good, good long-acting therapeutic antibiotics that are very effective on uh, menheimia or mm -hmm. shipping fever type pneumonias and uh, then mycoplasma seems to have moved in and, and uh, taken its place as a significant cause of mortality. And unfortunately, those animals often are, are treated two and three times and die uh, in the second month after arrival rather than in the first few weeks like they used to with Mannheim hemolytica. I think that I'm not really ready to give up metaphylaxis on high-risk animals at this point, but I do think we need to do a better job of assessing response to therapy. So I think we need to be very critical of our treatment success at two days or 48 hours after administering an antibiotic. and I have some evidence of that from some work that we did with a client uh, a few years ago. We had about 4,000 auction mark, reasonably high-risk calves that were placed in feedlots, and certainly metaphylaxis was very effective, and this was just using long-acting tetracycline. We cut the treatment rate by about 50%, but we reduced the mortality rate by two-thirds. So wow. I really could not consider that metaphylaxis was not effective on those high-risk animals. Mm -hmm. But what we also did in that trial was to look at a strategy where we treated with a long-acting antibiotic and sent them to their home pen versus we treated them and held them for uh, evaluation at 48 hours. And yes, we, we end up when we tempt those animals at 48 hours, we put uh, some of those animals onto a second-line antibiotic for therapy, but we reduce the case fatality rate from perhaps something in the range of 14% down to about 4 mm -hmm. So it's, it was a significant benefit to hold those animals and evaluate them with a the thermometer 
versus sending them home and just trying to evaluate their response by eye. Okay. Um, I think it's important that people realize that we should avoid over-treatment, especially, for example, based on fever alone. Um, it may be useful to temp animals at arrival um, and, and treat based on fever, but only at arrival. Later in the feeding period, a few days into or, uh, the time post-arrival, you're going to find that a lot of animals have a fever, but they're not necessarily sick with uh, pneumonia or requiring treatment for shipping fever at that point in time. Okay, is there any other important points that you'd like practitioners to know? I think it's important that uh, when it comes to treatment that we don't house chronic animals, those that are being treated for the second and third time with uh, first-time pulls. There's a very high likelihood that these animals being treated for the second and third time might be persistently infected with BVD or even be starting to develop mycoplasma bovis pneumonia. Um, when I mention mycoplasma uh, pneumonia, one of the things that I'd like to clarify is that several years ago there was an association that was thought to exist between mycoplasma and BVD. Uh, the truth of the matter is that investigations since that time have shown that BVD is certainly a significant uh, precursor or cause of pneumonia, period both shipping fever and mycoplasma. It's not unique. Animals that are infected with BVD are more likely to develop pneumonia, okay. and that pneumonia is more likely uh, to become chronic in the case of mycoplasma. But it's, it's, uh, we should not think of, uh, uh, oh, well, mycoplasma is, is caused by BVD presence. Okay. Uh, another point to make, I think, is that it's important in a feedlot and any agricultural uh, production system that we post-mortem all of the animals that die. I think, first of all, it can often be a relief to the caretaker to find that there was something that they couldn't treat or couldn't do anything about or they had pre-existing disease that was too advanced for them to treat. Um, but treatment, case fatality, mortality rates are going to vary with the risk level of the cattle that are purchased, but we should uh, always be trying to achieve a goal of preventable mortalities being less than 20% or about one in five animals that die. Um, another point to be very cognizant of in, in production systems and in the feedlot, and I think they've done a very good job in most large feedlots, is that welfare needs to be assessed on a daily basis. Animals that are uh, recumbent and, and have a poor prognosis or have been treated maybe down for example, for 24 hours, are unlikely to recover and need to be euthanized at that point. It's also important on a weekly basis to look at the chronic or recovery pen and to sort of triage that pen. Some of those animals are better and they can go back to their home pen with their, with their uh, peers. There's others that uh, need to stay a little longer and maybe require another treatment or something and need to stay under closer observation. And there's going to be animals there that have recovered well enough and the drug withdrawals are up that they, they could be marketed early. But uh, it's important, I think, to keep an eye on that uh, chronic or recovery pen on a regular basis. And uh, some animals in that pen may actually have to be euthanized after if they've had continual weight loss or not recovering. 
And of course, the last thing I think that's important is that it's important for the producer to keep some records. We all get in a hurry and want to just treat that animal and not bother taking the temperature, etc. But when the veterinarian arrives and, and is looking at the chronic pen and trying to help make decisions about that or investigating some abnormal outbreak of a disease, it's going to be very difficult to do much without some records of how soon after arrival animals get treated, whether they had a fever or not, when they relapse, etc. So those records are really important. And of course, with those records will be uh, the use of the thermometer to, to monitor what's happening with the disease process. I think if anything, it seems to be very clear from our conversation today that being organized on the producer's part can really save them money and time. Definitely, definitely. I think that's important to, to realize is that uh, you, you've got to be organized ahead of the head of the wreck or the outbreak problem. Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Ken. Thanks, Melanie, for the opportunity.